It is a special case of disinformation because of its level of complexity. According to Meta, it has been the largest and the most complex Russian operation that they have reported so far. And by complex, I mean the network involves over 60 websites impersonating news and media outlets such as The Guardian, Spiegel and ANSA. In October this year, the social media giant Meta took down a Russian network of social media accounts spreading disinformation on the war on Ukraine. Meta says it is the largest network of its kind the company disrupted since the war in Ukraine began. More specifically, identified social media accounts were sharing false information by relaunching fake articles published on as many as 60 websites impersonating legitimate news organizations. Articles published on these websites were shared on social media and messaging apps, such as Facebook, Instagram, Telegram and Twitter. Coming up on Europe Talks Back, the state of the fight against disinformation in Europe. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll be right back. Maria Dios is one of the editors of Europe Talks Back. For today's episode, we asked Maria to take a look at the report published by Meta. So this is me speaking to our editor, Maria Dios. So Maria, we have found this report, right, which discusses disinformation in Europe. It's a report by Meta, so the business and company of Zuckerberg. What is this report all about? So... To be very clear, the report is the outcome of an investigation done by the social media giant Meta on online disinformation. To give you some context, um, Meta has been tackling disinformation for five years and monitoring what the big tech company calls coordinated inauthentic behavior. So this basically means networks of fake accounts in social media that coordinate efforts to manipulate the public debate on the internet. And this year, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Meta has uncovered one of the most sophisticated networks running on social media to mislead the narrative on the war in Ukraine. So this report focuses on these large networks that comes from Russia, which created and shared content on platforms such as Facebook or Instagram to manipulate the public debate about refugees and sanctions across the European Union. 
So let's get a bit more into it and break this down. So how exactly did this operation of disinformation work? What was the strategy that was used in this specific instance? So in other terms, what makes it a special case of disinformation? So it is a special case of disinformation because of its level of complexity. According to Meta, it has been the largest and the most complex Russian operation that they have reported so far. And by complex, I mean the network involves over 60 websites impersonating news and media outlets such as The Guardian, Spiegel and ANSA. If one looks at the images that the report includes, one can see a website that looks just like The Guardian. Uh, that even includes links to the original newspaper and the names of the authors and the journalists. But it was a fake website built to create fake content. And in these spoof websites, the network promote articles criticizing Ukraine and criticizing Ukrainian refugees, as well as the Western sections on Russia. Basically, they replicated Russian propaganda. And once this was done, the network shared this content all over the internet. So through Twitter, Telegram, Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So you can see it was a very complex case of disinformation. And it targeted several countries in the European Union. It also needed linguistic resources to be able to remove all these accounts because it was in German, in English, in French, in Italian, Spanish, Russian and Ukrainian. So you already mentioned some figures related to this disinformation strategy and concrete action, but can we go through this again to understand the scope and size of this disinformation action? Sure. So to recall the countries where this network operated, the target was primarily Germany, followed by France, Italy, Ukraine and the UK. But there was also a website that had content in Spanish, Chinese and Arabic. But if we look also at the numbers shared by Meta, the, this Russian network had a presence of um, Facebook with 1,633 accounts, 703 pages, one Facebook group, and 29 accounts on Instagram. Regarding the followers, about 4,000 accounts follow one or more of these pages in Facebook. Less than 10 accounts joined this Facebook group and about 1,500 accounts follow one or more of these Instagram accounts. And lastly, the last figure is that according to Meta, the network spent around 105,000 of dollars for ads on Facebook and Instagram, which is quite impressive. Wow. So, okay, this whole operation was uncovered somehow. And what are the consequences of this? I mean, what was learned? Are there any recommendations coming out of this experience? One of the lessons learned, I believe, is that online disinformation is getting more and more sophisticated, which means that 
If you find a tweet or a post that shares information and it is linked to a reliable source, it might not be true and you might not notice it. My personal fear is that people might lose confidence in official sources of information, such as the media that we mentioned, The Guardian or ANSA, if these actions keep happening. Um, but something positive that came out is that while the websites require technical and linguistic investments, the majority of the fake accounts were removed from Facebook and Instagram automatically by Meta's system before they even start investigating the network. And regarding recommendations, so Meta shared this information with other tech companies, security researchers, governments, so they can take appropriate action too. And at the end of this report, uh, there are some threat indicators um, that were shared also to help the security community. Is there anything else we should mention related to this investigation, Maria, in your opinion? Yes, um, I think it's important to mention that it is not clear the real implications that this will have because there is no evidence that these fake networks were linked to the Russian government. So no one knows exactly who made this. Meta says that it um, started in Russia, but there's no way to know to whom this belongs. Right, so we imply this just from the potential effect that this information has on the public opinion, right? Yeah. Thank you, Maria, for these insights on this really interesting report. Thank you. We will be right back. Trisha Meyer is an assistant professor of digital governance and participation at the Brussels Schools of Governance of the Vrije Universiteit Brussel. She leads the Research Center for Digitalization, Democracy and Innovation, the BA in Communication and Public Relations and the Jean Monnet Winter and Summer Schools on EU Policymaking. Trisha is also the principal investigator of the EDMO Billux project, EDMO Billux, an EU-funded hub on research, fact-checking and media literacy on online disinformation in Belgium and Luxembourg. Trisha researches the regulatory push toward and social consequences of tech platforms taking proactive, automated measures to moderate online content, with a focus on disinformation and copyright. A second closely related research strand pertains to stakeholder engagement and participatory governance in digital policy. So, we invited Professor Meyer to discuss disinformation on this podcast. This is me speaking to Trisha Meyer. So Trisha, we brought you in because you are an expert on disinformation. I would rather start from a really general question. How can we define disinformation or explain what it is in simple terms? Disinformation is if we follow the EU guidelines and definitions, it's verifiably false information with an intent to deceive or to cause harm in some way. So that might be economically or politically. And what we notice is that in responses, often we're looking at intentionality of spreading information to deceive or then this aspect of harm, the harm caused, so rather the effect that it might have. 
Over the past few years, we have had different terms to describe this phenomenon. I mean, we had fake news, misinformation, disinformation. Are these terms or interchangeable or is there a difference which we need to make between them? In that definition that I just presented to you with this intentionality to deceive or the effect of harming, that's actually very difficult to establish. So we noticed that a lot of responses, and that could be policy responses or the responses that platforms have, intermingle these, these two aspects. Misinformation would refer more to the spreading of false information, but where you don't have the intention, uh, it might be because you, you've been misinformed yourself, right? And you actually have a good intention of letting people know about, if we take the example of COVID, of some type of new public health measure. So it is hard to distinguish, and I do tend to intermingle them somewhat. I do avoid the term of fake news because that's been politicized, in particular by political leaders. We don't have to go very far to think of that in the past. Former President Trump used to very much use that to attack traditional media. And so that tends to be a term that has been used far more broadly to to also criticize someone or a media outlet that you don't agree with. So that tends to be a term that is, I would say, slightly more problematic. To what extent is disinformation something which relates only to our digital societies and to the newest times we're living, actually? So is disinformation really something new? No, it's not a new phenomenon. Disinformation, especially as a political tactic or as a, a strategic part of a toolkit in the foreign kind of arsenal, is quite common and is definitely not linked to the digital era. So if we think of World War II, for instance, It was quite common to send out mixed signals in order for the opponent to not know actually where you were planning to attack. It goes back really to Roman times, Egyptian times, etc. So it's not uncommon, but I would say it is taken on a new level as many things have in the digital era. And the amount of people that can be involved either intentionally or unintentionally, going back to this distinction between disinformation and misinformation and how it's difficult to distinguish. There's so much more amplification on the one hand and spreading of or ability to spread uh, disinformation in an online space because we've also gone from eras where it was one to many communication to many to many communication. So anything that spreads now has an ability to really just kind of explode. You know, this podcast starts from a news about how disinformation was used in the context of the war on Ukraine. What have been the main events around which we have seen rise of disinformation over the past few years? The interest in disinformation, I would say, started around 2016. Uh, scares uh, around foreign interference and electoral misdisinformation. If we think of uh, US elections, Brexit, EU elections, etc., there was really this fear and also proof that there had been particular tactics used by Russian actors And I think we see another manifestation or a different face of that actually also using traditional media in that regard. So there's always been an interest and a fear around elections because we want our democracies to work and people to be informed and be able to make informed choices. Then we really saw around COVID, health dis and misinformation, that there's been a lot of fear of what that might mean if people are not willing to follow guidelines.
guidelines. So there's a, a security threat component to that, but also I think a genuine concern of people actually being able to take care of themselves and others. So there was a lot that got pushed forward in terms of fighting health disinformation in past years. And then I would say since March of this year, we've really seen that there's been an uptake as well. So the response often is in reaction to what is present, right? So really we see responses and fear around Russian misinformation, Russian propaganda on the Ukraine war. And the tactics in this are interesting. It's been well known that Russian media have great difficulties to be independent. And if they are, they're suppressed and that you have to kind of take reporting with a grain of salt. Also in online presences that there's a lot of pushing of particular narratives. And then you see this, what EU DisinfoLab uh, refers to as a doppelganger effect of this cloning of media channels and in more subtle ways of trying to influence through what could be considered credible media. So it's that's not entirely new, but it's taking everything to a new level, I would say. Now, until now, I feel we have really much analyzed the offer side of this information, but obviously in an exchange of information, there's always uh, also demand side of who consumes them, right? And what does research tell us about, for instance, the likelihood of people to consume this information and accept it as real? It's hard to measure, right? Because there's a lot of different factors at play. What we do tend to notice, and, and we've had some of our research in the context of our uh, European Digital Media Observatory on Belgium and Luxembourg at Mobilux, we've really been focusing on user impact in that. And some of what we notice is that it's those who already have a higher level of distrust in, in traditional media, in political institutions, for various reasons, who then are more likely to engage with this type of content. So those seeking alternative narratives. It also means that the responses perhaps aren't entirely adequate. If we think of the dominant responses to disinformation right now being fact-checking or kind of making platforms uh, moderate content more severely, that's not going to do anything about the level of distrust that that is present. And there is also a component of of media literacy that is important in this as well, where we notice that people are engaging less with news, or it might be something that pops up quickly on the news feed, but not actually reading news sources that we might say are credible and trustworthy because there's journalistic standards that are being followed. There's a lot more blurring of that in an online context. So it's harder for people to know from the basis what is actually something that I could trust. And and there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that regard of making sure that from those who are young, our children and youth, but also us really in the way that we engage with content of being aware of kind of signals of what might be uh, disinforming and in particular what might be along the lines of being manipulative. But the distrust issue is a really important component that I would highlight that we notice, which is a hard issue to solve. So, so disinformation then is actually a manifestation 
manifestation of something that is deeper rooted. And do we have also some data about socioeconomic traits? I mean, you mentioned this likelihood for people who have low trust, but is there any evidence that tells us, I don't know, that specific generations tend to be more inclined to accept disinformation as truth? So we can look at demographics, socioeconomic status. There's not a clear picture that comes through. But we have noticed the focus that we had was looking at far right groups and that <laughs> it's very present both in terms of the channels and disinformation being spread and at the same time then also the belief in and interestingly also flipping over to then conspiracy theories as well. And part of what is not feeling heard, not feeling that current policy is addressing your needs. There's a strong level of otherness, of course, going on of, of not stepping into other people's shoes and, and being willing to, to kind of make compromises. But there's also a strong component then uh, feeling restricted in your free speech. And so uh, what tends to happen is traditional mainstream social media platforms, they don't find as accommodating enough. So it gets moved to other channels, say Telegram, where then there's more voice being given, it's less moderated. And then you just have this cycle of more being able to be spread, but also more belief in because you have this closer knit community in which there is a, a sharing of particular values. So there is people who blame the platforms, right? Social media platforms as being the reason for this information also to be so strong today. What is your take on this? I mean, is there truth to this coming back to this idea of communications many to many or are we kind of blaming them too much today? So platforms certainly play a part. They are not neutral. And the choices that are made in terms of which content is being surfaced or which content is being demoted, what is being fact-checked, etc., they certainly have a strong role to play in that. So I wouldn't diminish the role that platforms have. And it certainly is the case that it is not trustworthy content necessarily. It is viral content instead that is being pushed. And there's certain commercial logic to that, right? Now, thinking more broadly, what are causes of disinformation? So we talked a little bit about impact of disinformation or who is susceptible to, to disinformation. It's a really complex problem. And so there's a using of the affordances of the technology by particular political actors. And there's also rules that can be passed on that, at least in democratic contexts, and abuses that kind of can be surfaced or kind of made known as the meta report does. But there's also a strong, I would say, socioeconomic political background to all of this, which I tried to highlight a little bit of indicating that there's levels of distrust present that is far more complex, right? And so it's also one where we need to think very carefully of, of where the responses are focused. And of course, there's, if we think of the European level, there's only a particular mandate that is present. And so there's particular responses, I would say, fact-checking and kind of going after the tech platforms. Uh, that is something that there's appetite for, but also a mandate. Well, we probably need to be going back and thinking really of how do we actually rebuild trust in society? And that is, <laughs> that is really, really far beyond disinformation, but again, is just kind of going to help, I think, in a far deeper way than the sometimes band-aid uh, solutions that currently are present. Mm -hmm.
success and failures of current approaches to, to fight disinformation. But nevertheless, let me ask you the question, what has been done to counter disinformation over the past few years? Besides knowing what has been done, also what you believe has worked and what has not worked? The type of responses have been primarily on encouraging more fact-checking of boosting uh, independent media. And then in a broader context, thinking of the role of platforms in a democracy, but also how the, the old rules apply in an online context. So if we think of the European context, you have the Code of Practice on Disinformation, which was just revised, but that actually flows into the Digital Services Act, which has a far broader uh, scope than disinformation. But we see that those things are kind of flowing in. And so there's a back and forth as well between those that I find interesting of how we're defining pl tech platforms, what rule we believe that they should have in our society, and then this very specific digital disinformation component that comes on that. How successful are there? It really depends on what we're talking about, especially that kind of twofold difference that I mentioned. I think the, the former thinking of measures that are really used to restrict free speech in order to hamper kind of the development or have this critical watchdog role on the state. I think those are highly, highly problematic. I think the efforts that are being made in terms of fact-checking, the role that platforms have to play, and in, in particular, asking them to be transparent about the type of measures that they're taking, I think those are all good. But I, I think I tried to highlight in this interview that that probably is not going to solve the root of the problem, because the root of the problem is not disinformation. Disinformation is there because political actors want to manipulate or economically profit off of, that's another possibility, or because there's a willingness to kind of engage with this content in the first place. So I think we need more of those media literacy efforts for sure, but then also thinking uh, more broadly, and again, I'm going to put in the European context here, the European Democracy Action Plan, I think, gives a far broader scope of what we need to be dealing with. But we need to be thinking of, okay, What, from a societal perspective, are the big dilemmas that are present? And how are we addressing those? And how does disinformation fit into that broader social dilemma? Thanks a lot, Trisha, for this insightful interview. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. It's really been a pleasure to be part of the podcast. We'll be right back. You can follow the work of Trisha Meyer on Twitter at Trisha Julien. That's T-R-I-S-H-A-J-U-L-E-E-N. And this is it for this week's episode of Europe Talks Back. The producer of Europe Talks Back is Antoine Lereux. Sound design is by Jeremy Bouquet. Editorial background research and script writing by Maria Dios and myself. Editing and mixing is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kusberg. Promotion and marketing by Katrin Skapelas. My name is Alexander Damiano Ricci. We'll be back next Friday.